0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S. China Relations events podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Welcome. Good morning to those in Asia. Good afternoon to those on the West Coast of the United States and good evening to those in other parts of the country. And I hope that people on the East Coast are all safe and sound after the storm. My name is Margot Landman. I'm Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on US-China Relations. We are extremely fortunate to have with us today two speakers who will address the complexities of the situation in Hong Kong and how Hong Kong fits into PRC Hong Kong relations and PRC US relations. You have their bios or you can check them out on the National Committee website. But briefly, Christine Lowe now divides her time between UCLA where she is a visiting professor at the Anderson School of Management and she is there now in LA and the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology Institute for the Environment. Previously she served as undersecretary for the environment in Hong Kong and as a legislator. She is also the former CEO of the Hong Kong think tank Civic Exchange. After decades serving in the US Foreign Service, Kurt Tong joined the Asia Group leading work in Japan and other parts of East Asia. His final diplomatic post was as Consul General in Hong Kong and Macau. Previously, he served in Washington, Tokyo and as ambassador for APEC, among other assignments. He was among the architects of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the US-Korea Free Trade Agreement during the Bush and Obama administrations. We look forward to taking audience questions, so please submit your questions using the Q&A icon at the bottom of your screen. And if you are willing to do so, include your name and affiliation. Before we start with one question each for Christine and Kurt to set the stage, I would like to thank my colleagues at the National Committee. It takes a village to put on a program. In this case, the village extends to our operations and communications teams, as well as to those who work directly on programs. Christine, the first question goes to you. Hong Kong has been through a lot in the last two years, 2019 and 2020, from the protests stemming initially from the proposed extradition bill and the district elections, from COVID to the national security law, and from dismissals of legislators to the recent detentions, arrests and charges against demonstrators and journalists. Could you set the stage for the evening by walking us through some of these developments and describing briefly the context and the significance?
1: Thank you, Margot. Well, I'll, I'll try and do that as briefly as I can. I think the defining moment, uh, or maybe I should say defining moments in the plural in 2019 uh, is uh, of course uh, the, the very extended uh, period of uh, protest. And from the protest, I think we can say that the direct course was the mishandling of the extradition bill by the Hong Kong SAR government. Uh, so so that's the first defining aspect. Uh, another uh, defining aspect is that despite all these years after the transition from 1997, um, we still saw a lot of sensitivities amongst ordinary Hong Kong people about its relationship with the mainland. So another defining aspect is that originally the, um, Uh, The protest, the very large protest uh, was nonviolent, but it did shift to to violence. And I think the point of departure has to do with the continuing violence over the months. And I know one of the discussions that we will have today is about the national security law. And the national security law is an outgrowth uh, of the violent, uh, uh the, the violence during this long protest period. Um, if I can just also press this point about the uh, uh, the narratives that have arisen from this period uh, of moments. So the kind of narratives that has come out of the switch from uh, nonviolent to violent is police brutality. How were protesters treated? Now, of course, there's the counter narrative as well to these narratives. Uh, one of the counter narratives is actually the Hong Kong police uh, had to deal with a lot of violence, and in terms of uh, death and injuries, actually it was very low. You know, if one were to take other types of similar large-scale protests from around the world, then we had another narratives of external forces interference. Uh, And and this might be something that uh, the participants would want to discuss, but what I'm saying is this is one of the narratives that has uh, uh, come forth. Another narrative is one of deep polarization in Hong Kong, the yellow and the blue, let's call this the yellow and the blue uh, narratives. And from there, Uh, uh, the arguments has been, well, uh, because of the brutality, because of fear of China, uh, somehow the ends justifies the means in terms of the extensive violence. And, you know, there's the Lam Chao, there's the bee water narratives. So all of these narratives were mixing into how we were looking at Hong Kong. And then, of course, one of the narratives uh, during this period and even uh, coming to today is, well, how are we going to pull back from the brink? And in past discussions I've had uh, with uh, yourselves, uh, we've talked about, well, when is it the right time to have some kind of uh, dialogue amongst the the uh, polarizing forces? And is there a moment for moderation? So let me leave that uh, for now and go back to the point of departure in terms of from non violence to violence now this has led to a whole a different narrative coming from around the world about what is uh, what's happening to hong kong you know the high level of uh, autonomy that hong kong is supposed to enjoy uh, derived from the basic law and the relationship of the joint declaration. What does the joint declaration between Britain and China really means today? So I think there's a, a whole discussion there and that obviously leads to a discussion about what's the degree of freedom that Hong Kong people still have. Um, then uh, at, at Margot, as you said, the context of the, um, uh, of the protest uh, also took place Within the geopolitical shifts in U.S.-China relations, so um, people also talk about Hong Kong being collateral damage when giants are having having a, a punch up. Then we talk about sanctions. Are sanctions useful? Um, uh, and y- 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 you know, we now have a whole discussion about what the U.S. and U.K. and other uh, other Western government governments might do in terms of giving more passports to uh, Hong Kong people and visas and so on. And then of course, a very current discussion is, well, if sanctions don't work, uh, what, what might the Biden Uh, administration do? Will the Biden administration be able to pull everything back from the brink, so to speak? And finally, I I do want to say that uh, COVID, I mean, you know, we can't have any discussion today about virtually anything uh, without mentioning COVID. So what's, What's the situation in Hong Kong? I mean, Hong Kong is not so dissimilar from many other places. You know, economic activities have been affected. Jobs is a a problem. Then of course, we are part of China. We're on the periphery of China. China has now said that going forward, it's going to practice a kind of due circulation in terms of its economic focus. What does this mean? Hong Kong, they have said, well, you know, this is a part of China. Uh, We're not going to let Hong Kong go down. Hong Kong could be integrated uh, uh, more fully into uh, the southern part of uh, the economy, uh, what we call the Greater Bay Area. So so these are some of the issues all happening between 2019 and today. Now, permit me just to end by saying um, a, a little summary. How Hong Kong people feel, I think today is, you know, a lot of things are unsettled. Uh, they're also unsettling, uh, because the national security law is a new experience for Hong Kong. Uh, And how will that uh, uh, be defined over over time? And our politics, if we're looking at our, whether you're talking about the pro-establishment camp or the uh, uh, pro-democracy camp, local politics is broken today. So, you know, how how does one go forward with the very difficult local uh, political uh, situation because my personal view is actually Hong Kong's problems got to be solved by people in Hong Kong we've got to have some rules of engagement maybe some new rules of engagement uh, with Beijing because they do call the shots they they are the sovereign power so so as I said my own personal view has always been um, that Hong Kong being a part of China that we do want the basic law to work. We do want a high degree of autonomy. We do want rule of law. Uh, we do want our freedoms, but in order to protect and expand and to, to to have that in Hong Kong, we cannot ignore Beijing. We cannot be seen as an enemy of Beijing. So perhaps I can just end here.
0: Okay, thank you very much. Lots to chew on there. Um, but before we chew, Kurt, You were Consul General in Hong Kong from summer 2016 to summer 2019, spanning the end of the Obama administration and more than two years of the Trump administration. With all that Christine just described as background and foreground, please tell us about interactions with the Hong Kong government and Hong Kong people during the years that you were representing the US government there and how they changed over time in the context of U.S.-Hong Kong relations and U.S.-China relations.
2: Yeah, let me back, let me back into an actual answer to your question, Margot, um, by, by giving an overall framing of what uh, I saw as the U.S. objectives in, in Hong Kong and our main uh, diplomatic tactical approaches to achieving those objectives um throughout my tour actually from 2016 all the way until uh the summer 2019 i left three days after um, the um uh the young people broke into the legislative council and desecrated the the meeting room there the um uh if you take a step back from the whole picture hong kong is part of china um, a very different part of china with a different culture different sets of laws, different um, social norms, uh, different expectations about how life should be conducted, uh, about what rights individuals have and should be able to exercise, very different, okay? You can go on and on and on about the differences, the the residual differences between Hong Kong and the rest of China. Um, That's sort of fact on the ground, number one. Fact number two was that people of Hong Kong liked that, and and in regardless of whether they were pro-establishment or or pan-democratic or localist in nature, people liked being different from the rest of China. Um, so that's Hong Kong. From the the international perspective, the value of Hong Kong derived primarily from differences rather than the fact that it was part of China. So the international community both officially and unofficially and in everything they did was never questioning the idea that that Hong Kong was part of China Um, but rather that it was better a better Hong Kong was a, a different Hong Kong and because it's useful frankly to the international community as a place to do business, a place to conduct research, academics, more pleasant place to visit, consistent with, with Western values um, in terms of how it's organized and how it runs, et cetera. And therefore also an extraordinarily useful bridge for doing business of all kinds, profit and nonprofit um, with bigger China, the, the rest of China. And the formulation that Deng Xiaoping established was different is good. Right, one country, two systems. Now he was very clear that it's gotta be one country and no one, he didn't want anyone questioning that. Um, and the international community never questioned it. And a handful of Hong Kongers ultimately started to say that they questioned it as sort of more of a tactic than a, than a sincere belief that that was ever possible. Um, but, the, but the operating assumption within China was different is good. So as China grew and Hong Kong grew too, but not as much. And as China became stronger and Hong Kong was strong but not as much, uh, China started to look at the cost benefit equation of China, of Hong Kong being different from a different perspective over time. Uh, The irritating parts of Hong Kong, freedom of speech. What's that? We don't like that, that's bad. Freedom of movement, uh, the 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 um, calls for democracy, people thumbing their nose at Beijing—all of that drives people in Beijing bananas. The part that they liked was well, the world's number three financial center, um, operating at great efficiency, bringing capital in and out of China, and and lead and and contributing to Chinese economic growth. A pleasant place to visit, a sign. Of a China sign from China that it was tolerant of international ways of doing business, um, even on Chinese turf to some extent, and that cost-benefit equation was shifting gradually uh, over over time. And what I think Chris, uh, Christine was describing was a more dramatic shift in that balance from Beijing's perspective, starting in 2019. But it was shifting already. So the, so to that question, It I felt, as did all my colleagues from other consulates and, and people in the international community in general in Hong Kong, that, that we were kind of sliding down a slope towards less autonomy. And that the goal was to slow that down, right? That was kind of the goal. So I brought my prop this evening. For those of you that read Chinese characters, the US loves Hong Kong, right? So I arrived in 2016 and the goal was to, in positive terms, express what was good about Hong Kong, why the international community liked that and why China should like it too. It's great, Hong Kong's wonderful, super, it's different, different is good. Two systems is just as important as one country, but we realize that you think that one country is more important, that's okay. We like two systems, we need two two systems is good, two systems is good, two systems is good constantly repeating that and why that was good and why we were comfortable with Chinese management of that arrangement, as long as they kept the promises. Enter increased friction, the the, the polarization of Hong Kong politics that Christine was describing and the changes in the cost benefit equation. And this started to fall apart um, quicker and quicker. And, and then events started to um uh, create themselves with you know the dramatic mishandling of the extradition um, situation, um, fostering demonstrations, demonstrations, changing Beijing's calculus. <clears throat> the one perhaps uh, and and an increasing feeling like we we're kind of, you know, the us. is essentially powerless in Hong Kong to change the fate of the city, right? The decisions, the key decisions are made in Beijing and and you know I would contest a little bit the the idea that Beijing's clampdown and elimination of freedoms subsequent to uh, 2019 was inevitable because other societies react to um, social unrest in other ways than than changing the law and, and, and you know essentially creating a system of, of gathering of political prisoners the um, that is unfortunate, not surprising, um, and and now has a lot of momentum. Uh, and dealing with it is going to be um, extraordinarily difficult, and perhaps you know maybe not be possible. But uh, the the uh, the main point is that the decision, if things are going to get better, they're going to get better because Beijing wants them to get better. Better defined as different, as high degree of autonomy, as separate. Um, from China in terms of how things are are managed, so that's kind of how I feel, and um, it it's uh, it's um, you know disconcerting how it all ended up.
0: Thank you, Kurt. Christine, do you want to respond to anything that Kurt just said, or should we go on to questions from the audience?
1: Um, I I I think I would just say that perhaps um, I'd like to think that what Kurt has shared with us, that the U.S. love Hong Kong, um, the strategy that he uh, shared with us in terms of when he arrived in Hong Kong, uh, that that was was the strategy, um, I thought was interesting because does that give us the seed of how U.S.-China relations could go forward again? So that's point number one. Point number two was he said that um, uh, he also didn't uh, and uh, and forgive me if I if I didn't understand uh, Kurt uh, uh, properly. I thought what I heard was that there were maybe fairly limited number of people who were really uh, uh, independence advocate and that they were doing this more as a tactic than something that they truly believed in. Now. Um, I'd like to think that that is true. uh, uh, And I think therefore it would be very important again um, to be much more explicit that um, secession is not, um, it's not the way forward. Now how one blends this into a discussion about uh, freedom of expression, perhaps I can leave that till later.
0: Kurt, any response to that?
2: well, one of the one of the you know there's a lot of episodes in, in my experience and I try to remember things clearly. Sometimes it's a bit of a blur. But one of the days I remember was um, when President Xi came to uh, Hong Kong in the um, summer of 2017 and gave a very important speech, um, which I had the opportunity to listen to um, uh, at the at the um, that that big convention center, and and he he seemed to say that he had a, a red line policy for for Hong Kong, and and that certain activities, and this was how it was also then spun spun out by the liaison office in terms of how it was explained to everybody, that certain activities were unacceptable, and 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 the Hong Kong government would be tasked with trying to uh, eliminate them. Uh, difficult to do given that at the time without the national security law, uh, some of these things are difficult to prosecute. So, but he was pretty clear that he didn't wanna hear people saying secession. And as a result, what I was hearing was that the vast majority of the pan-democratic crowd, including um, localists, people who were running for legislative council and whatnot, were very careful not to use the independence word. Now they said they said stuff that was offensive to Beijing, but not crossing that particular line. Or they were trying to be careful not to cross that particular line. And that's sort of where things were on that on the the fine the outside of the envelope and the fine edge was in that area. I, I got taken to task by the Hong Kong government when um, I went on tv and and was asked the question the, the journalist you know it always gets you in trouble saying is it okay for people to to advocate independence and i said well in the united states it's okay um so that's my answer and the that got i got in trouble for that like i got smacked on the wrist like can't say that and i said okay yeah, I'll, I'll tone it down but the 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 point being that that was the edge of the envelope, and then somehow the extradition thing just just got helped get things get out of hand, and uh, and you had some increasing numbers of people saying, uh, really going out of their way to antagonize Beijing um, in the course of those protests, which was unfortunate. And the more moderate Democrats were trying to tone it down, but but were unsuccessful. I still don't think that that justifies. Um, the National Security Law, um, and uh, and so we should get into a discussion about what the options are going forward. I'm not sure there are that many.
0: We've got quite a few questions on um, about the effectiveness of U.S. policy, and I think both of you have said in different ways that there's really not much the U.S. can do, um, but. Let me read some of these questions. I'm grouping them together in the interests of time because we've got quite a number of questions coming in. Um, The first one comes from Nelson Dong of Dorsey & Whitney, who is a director of the National Committee. Various US sanctions have publicly targeted Hong Kong SAR officials. Could you comment on the effectiveness and impact of those types of US sanctions to alter laws or policies and to promote the rule of law. From Roy Sheldon of the China Business, Associ- of China Business Associates, recognizing the history of unequal treaties signed during the Qing Dynasty, Hong Kong's colonial past and China's ascent onto the world stage as an economic, political, and military powerhouse since 1997, what Leverage to the British and the global community realistically have on Beijing for the remaining 27 years of the joint declaration. And as the return of Taiwan is the last remaining goal of Beijing, what is a supportable strategy for the US, Taiwan and its allies to maintain peace while trying to influence the current political situation in Hong Kong? And just two more. What other effective policies or levers could or might the Biden team offer except for the current symbolic sanctions on 14 deputy chairpersons in Beijing? That's from Jin Sun Graduate Institute in Geneva and from Frank Wang at Scholastics. Has the U.S. gone overboard in its Hong Kong sanctions relative to the gross murder of the journalist by the Saudi authorities? That's probably a little bit too far askew for us. Um, should we start with you, Kurt?
2: Um, sure. So, the policy options for any foreign country on in this situation are limited, right? And I do think the main decision points are are in in reside in Beijing. The um, and so. As, as I was describing earlier, the attempt was to appeal to, to China's better angels, if you will, that, that it was in their interest to maintain a high degree of autonomy in Hong Kong. Um, and that, that that would be result in, in good benefits um, for, for China. That's positive leverage, right? So none of the questions talked about the execution of positive leverage as opposed to uh, negative leverage. The um, I still think there's a role for positive leverage. It's not being talked about in Washington, in the current context. Um, I was one of like maybe two and a half people in all of Washington who thought that the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act last fall was a bad idea, um, and that the um, and that the U.S. should 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 be really careful about putting itself in a box of making the the Hong Kong um, Policy Act work in negative fashion as well as in positive fashion. So just to review, the Hong Kong Policy Act, the U.S. is the only country to my knowledge that had a specific act specifically authorizing the U.S. to treat Hong Kong differently than the rest of China for purposes of its law, U.S. law. The, that was a good... Thing And it, and it allowed, you know, the US is kind of hyper-legal country and that's probably why we did it. But the, the, it, it, it provided a framework that the idea was to treat Hong Kong as much as possible separately to reinforce the, the autonomy muscles that the Hong Kong government and society could, could utilize. So positive leverage. The problem was that in that legislation, we also said, well, if it starts to lose autonomy then the US should do something about it in terms of how it treats Hong Kong. And that was a mistake in retrospect. And other countries didn't get themselves into that box. And it led to the US then in, 20, in this, this year as the national, national security law was implemented and, and by any measure, Hong Kong lost a lot of autonomy um, it, due to the, the imposition of that law. Didn't, doesn't mean it has none but the U.S. now has gotten itself boxed into like a binary decision of saying one or the other. It either has autonomy or doesn't have autonomy. Okay, well, we're gonna decide it doesn't have autonomy and act thusly. What, what I'd like to see is some revival of the idea that positive leverage has a role here. And that at, in the areas that Hong Kong exercises autonomy, the U.S. will, will treat it with as as if it has that autonomy or because it does and get back into a little bit of a, trying to rebuild these ideas of of Hong Kong having a degree of autonomy. Now things like the national security security law, very difficult now that Beijing's locked into that. I honestly can't think of a a form of leverage that is not self-destructive for the United States that could possibly get China to reverse that law. Um, And that's an unfortunate state of affairs. The the negative leverages that that all the questions we're asking, sanctions is one of them. Um the treating Hong Kong the same as China, the, the normalization policy that the Trump administration has used is another one. Um, they have similarly have very little effect because the the price, the cost for Hong Kong or China is low. And on, on the distancing question, the cost is all on Hong Kong. It's not on China and uh, the normalization policies all fall on, on Hong Kong's shoulders. And then the other question is then do you take it to the next level and really try to just like punish China over Hong Kong and bits of the Hong Kong Autonomy Act hint at that um, by the, introducing the idea of bank sanctions um, over, specifically over Hong Kong. Problem is all of that is self-destructive for the United States. It's it's all lose-lose type activities because if you make Hong Kong worse and make it suffer, it's bad for the United States. So it's a it's a box. It's a pickle, um, and and uh, not no no like really silver bullet type ways out of it that I can see.
1: Christine. Yeah, um, I think the word is collateral damage right sitting in Hong Kong. uh, If you're looking at it from whether it serves Hong Kong's interest. um, I think all the sanctions and whatnot that has come out of the current US administration has not been good for Hong Kong. Uh, The other thing that has not been helpful. And indeed, this is something that I think really gets up Beijing's nose uh, is that we've had Hong Kong political figures running to Washington, calling for sanctions, calling for sanctions to uh, uh, to punish Hong Kong, to punish Hong Kong and Chinese officials, including giving a list of names of Hong Kong officials that should be sanctioned and punished. So w- w- what I'm saying is um, this kind of activity uh, is also one of those things that, you um, Perhaps the U.S. has never experienced, uh, but I think for uh, if you're sitting up in Beijing, this is uh, something that is much more than an irritant, and it's much more than uh, a silly little tactic, you know, maybe from some young people. So I I I think um, it, it also uh, requires Hong Kong to think more deeply because going forward. Uh, we will have politics in Hong Kong, we will have to deal with our own uh, discussions about how to further uh, democracy, for example, and you know, how do we then deal with Beijing. So so I think some of the things that actually happened in 2019 uh, has been very damaging. And I think it's not enough just to say, well, you know, it's too bad we have the national security law. Well, we we have to live it. Uh, And um, uh, the notion that the US has stepped in uh, to, to with these sanctions and, um, and so on. Uh, what has that really done? Uh, that has made Beijing dig its heels in. And I think we all can agree that it's, it's, it's not going to step back. Now, uh, to think kind of more positively, um, this notion of positive versus negative leverage, um, I I do see some signs, nevertheless, that Beijing is prepared to kind of have a new relationship with a a new government uh, in in the U.S. Now, uh, Hong Kong might not be the first thing uh, uh, on its mind, um, but over the course of the next year, uh, what are some of the areas where U.S. and China can start some meaningful dialogue, start to uh, come to some Come, come to some new new rules of engagement amongst themselves. Uh, and I think only, and, and I think actually many other countries uh, uh, and, and certainly business and so on, are very keen to see um, uh, a more, you know, a more positive relationship between US and China. I mean, we've already heard from all these countries in ASEAN, for example, basically saying, please don't force us to take sides. Um, so, so I think, uh, 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 with the new administration, how will that? I mean, I I have no basis for for uh, for making too many guesses, but I think Kurt, you are the uh, you're the expert here. Um, what what is it that that is possible, Kurt? What's possible?
2: Um, well, I think there's going to be a lot of um, exploration of some different approaches to China. The the fundamental i mean just talking about you know we're, we're we're our topic today is hong kong and unfortunately when you start talking about the broader context of us china relations hong kong drops down to priority number somewhere down the list um, from the perspective of us national interest which is what the us government is going to pursue um, the uh, And what that means is that there is not so much opportunity for cross-linkage. For example, you know, the U.S. saying, well, we'll do this on trade if you stop arresting people in Hong Kong um, or something like that. 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 That kind of thing just won't work. For one thing, Beijing would... Consider that offensive and an interference in internal affairs of China, et cetera, and and uh, and it also would mean giving up something that's you know a, perhaps a more important prerogative or priority for the United States in, in pursuing its interests vis-a-vis China. The um, so I'm not I'm not coming up with a a, a clear way that, frankly, a a different approach from the Biden administration with respect to China is is immediately going to lead to things improving um, with respect to Beijing's policy on on Hong Kong. Um, and unfortunately, I don't I don't actually expect that to transpire. The um, just being honest here, I do think that what the Biden administration the main difference in its China policy will be the degree of coherence. Uh, and the degree to which it, it makes common cause with, with other countries, not against China per se, but against specific aspects of Chinese policy in the international sphere that, that the U.S. And, and other countries object to. Um, and so I would expect to see a lot of attempts to uh, make common cause with like-minded countries in dealing with issues like um, technology um, diversion and theft, um uh state-owned enterprise participation in the international economy um china's approach to infrastructure lending etc um the and then of course the, the the strategic and military issues uh and uh and that that will be the the fundamental change more teamwork uh and and a calmer perhaps more rational approach to trying to set up the possibility of some win-win negotiations between uh, the U.S. and China that, that are broader in scope than just the the trade piece that the Trump administration concentrated on, where where Hong Kong fits into that, I don't know. I would love to see China say, you know, just from its own interests, that they're going to slow down and kind of dial back on the the current. Campaign in Hong Kong that feels a little bit like a strike hard campaign um, to to defang all politi- political opposition in Hong Kong and just dial it back because they've done enough right. They got m- m- most of the leaders have either fled the city or uh, are in jail and and rounding up the rest of them isn't going to accomplish anything other than create a, a constant irritation and anxiety uh, among people in Hong Kong. So maybe they 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 might dial it back, but but. Um, I'm I'm not optimistic as of today.
1: Right, I I do want to come in here and because uh, uh, very much of what Kurt said, I I agree with, Um, but it does mean that the sanctions uh, that have been put out there and a lot of the narratives by some of the most senior officials in the US about Hong Kong uh, has actually been fairly damaging and hasn't actually helped to uh, assist Hong Kong uh, to to be able to do. I think what Kurt had explained to us at the start of our discussion, which is uh, to support autonomy. Um, so, so I think that's that's one of my conclusions. The second one is dialing back. Um, there has been a small gem of uh, hope in uh, Carrie Lam's her policy address, where for those people who had um, uh, played a minor role uh, in the protest that it is possible to show some kind of clemency. But the issue again about not pursuing them too hard uh, is that the crimes that has been committed that the fact that they did something wrong also has to be acknowledged. So I think there is a space there you know how that's going to be. Um, uh, how how that's going to 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 uh, to be organized. I think we have to wait and see. But I do see uh, a, a glimmer of uh, of uh, hope there uh, for p- possibly many of those who've been arrested uh, or even charged for lesser crimes.
0: Continuing with the the Hong Kong itself as opposed to US policy theme. We've got a couple of questions pointing out that one country, two systems was meant only to last for 50 years. And this version of the question comes from somebody named James. He didn't include his last name. Therefore, eventually the objective was to fully integrate Hong Kong back into China by 2047. The changes in Hong Kong since 97 have to soft integration of the Hong Kong population to accept China's ideology. However, much of the protest against China was led by the generation that grew up after 97 is there a sense of failure from China that they have not been able to influence the Hong Kong populace? And a related question, not so much the 50 years, but from Joe Batat, formerly of the World Bank, now with MIT, how much have economic factors played into the recent events in Hong Kong, such as access to affordable housing, adequate living wages, and so on?
1: Um, I certainly think there is a lot of social economic discontent in Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong has some of the issues that I think you also see in the U.S. and elsewhere, which is that uh, for you know for for half a generation, uh, the real the real income of uh, uh, people have have not increased, whilst cost has increased. A lot of people have made a lot of money. Um, rich people got richer. And and actually uh, some of the the social justice issue has not been addressed. So uh, I think if you were a young person in Hong Kong, um, you might say, well, you know, really what is my future? So I think that's number one. The number two is uh, the threat to identity. uh, The feeling that our way of life, you know, Kurt described this as, uh, you know, Hong Kong is different. We have our different way of life and we really treasure and love that. And are we losing that? Uh, And are we becoming mainland dice, so to speak? But somehow uh, we haven't been able to have the kind of more constructive political discussion about our fears, uh, to what extent these fears are justified. Now, of course, uh, the other thing is um, uh, that there are changes on the mainland as well as Kurt also reminds us Um, the usefulness of Hong Kong uh, is no longer as absolute as it used to be. And um, uh, I think there's a lot of concern in Hong Kong that somehow the mainland's advance has just been so awesome. So that creates a sense in ordinary Hong Kong people about whether they can keep up. So I think that's one. The other one is we also see the failure of our local politics. So, you know, the democracy, um, uh, uh, campaigns, um, that has always been seen by Hong Kong people as one way of asserting our identity. Um, uh, but nevertheless, uh, we haven't got it and young people use that as kind of a, a, a batch of of uh, uh, why they're surging forward. Now, of course, I think even the Democrats did make some very serious mistakes uh, in 2014, 2015, Uh, Beijing, under the current leadership, was willing to put something on the table, where after there is a a kind of nomination process, two or three people could be elected as chief executive. And for the Democrats, the pan-Democrats, including a lot of new young people who were coming forward, this simply wasn't good enough. They want a no-holds-bar kind of uh, electoral process. And in the end, of course, uh, that actually quite generous Uh, proposal was rejected. I I must say, I was very, very concerned and upset at the time, because if you looked at it um, uh, historically, I mean, if you looked at the Chinese Communist Party, this was the most um, uh, this was the most democratic thing that they were willing to to allow a significant part of the country uh, to go ahead with. And we decided in Hong Kong, the Democrats said, no, we don't want it. This is just not good enough. So I think we also need to think about that, you know, going forward, if we want uh, electoral reform, then how do we go about reviving this discussion with Beijing? A few
0: follow up, very more specific questions related to that from Virginia Harper Ho at the University of Kansas Law School. What are the prospects for a continued free press and independent judiciary in Hong Kong, given the patriotism requirements already applied to the legislature? And from Robert Keatley, former SCMP, South China Morning Post editor, is there any possibility that real autonomy can be restored, or is it gone forever?
1: Of course. the notion of patriotism actually is really important. Um, you know, when I was growing up in Hong Kong, I don't remember uh, anyone ever asking me to sing "God Save the Queen." You know, throughout my time in going to school in Hong Kong, and you know, then I went to school in England. Um, the British themselves are not very uh, demonstrative in terms of their the symbols of of uh, of their patriotism. So I, I, I think for Hong Kong people. Uh, the notion of the symbol of state, which actually is very important in China, it's very important to Beijing, Um, we have a very low appreciation of how upsetting it is. Uh, For example, I mean people would remember uh, for some years before 2019 that uh, whenever China, uh, this was in soccer, whenever China was playing uh, another jurisdiction, um, uh, that the national anthem was played and you, you, you know people would boo and and actually do terribly disrespectful things and then i think also uh, in hong kong in 2019, the um, uh, uh, the, the the damaging the destruction of the national anthem, the flags and all of those things, I think to Beijing and to mainlanders uh, are very upsetting. And and if we were to do a a kind of comparison to the US, uh, taking the knee, right, uh, for a lot of athletes, uh, taking the knee appears when you juxtapose it to what Hong Kong people were doing with our national symbols was very gentle. So I think again, uh, it does require us to think about patriotism if we accept that China is the sovereign power, can we at least be uh, very respectful of the national symbols? Now, there is a whole discussion in Hong Kong today about uh, the government asking civil servants to uh, uh, do a pledge of uh, loyalty. Now, this is symbolic, you know, and are you willing even to do that? And we mustn't forget that uh, a number of legislators in terms of swearing their oath of office and you know some of them were disqualified. And actually, if you watched actually what they were doing you kind of think, well, actually you probably could be disqualified in other jurisdictions, legislature as well, because everybody has to kind of uh, take some kind of an oath of office. So I, I, I think this lack of appreciation amongst ordinary Hong Kong people because we hadn't been asked to do some of these things before. What does patriotism mean? I mean, this is actually a good topic of conversation uh, in Hong Kong itself. And the the other question from Robert Keatley about real autonomy. Well, uh, I think autonomy is a high degree of autonomy. Beijing would say that we never said you are fully autonomous. Uh, And the autonomy, if we were to look at the basic law, this is what spells out the autonomy, not the joint declaration, but the basic law. And the basic law always had article 23 there. The article 23 is Hong Kong, you guys have got to go and pass your own laws, but we're very clear about what those things are going to be. So that's subversion, uh, collusion uh, and uh, uh, secession and a number of other things. So we never managed to pass our law and trying to say, well, you, know, you never did it, I'm gonna now give it to you uh, in the national uh, security law. So I, I think if you were looking, I think one of the things that Hong Kong people have to do, uh, however difficult it is, is to be willing to look at the narrative from Beijing side and then to see, well, is there some uh, dialogue that we can have in order to uh, really maintain this autonomy that is so valuable, that you know, even up in Beijing, they acknowledge we want one country, two systems to succeed. And I think the U.S., you know, according to what uh, Kurt has uh, shared with us, well, this is what everybody wants: that there is the space in Hong Kong that serves everybody's interest. And China has now put a big red line across it. Yes but not in these areas. So this is what, I mean, I think Hong Kong, we need to take this on and develop uh, a narrative, new rules of engagement with Beijing, but possibly this very moment, I don't know whether we are ready for that or not.
0: Kurt, anything to add?
2: Sure. Um, if I could go back to just briefly to the 50 year thing, and then I've got something to add on this question. The the the. Um, the Sino-British Joint Declaration Basic Law does not say that the 50-year period is a um, a time for the frogs to be quietly boiled in in uh, in sort of Communist Party philosophy sauce until they like it at the end. Um, it it actually said high degree of autonomy for 50 years, minimum. So that. That wasn't the intention of, of um, maybe it was a secret intention of Deng Xiaoping, but it wasn't a stated intention, and it's certainly not what what Britain and, and Hong Kong signed up for. The the um, uh, on the so I think it's important to try and somehow establish a sense of pop, of either things not getting worse or. Or reestablish a sense of positive momentum. Because a lot of a lot of what Christine said, I'd really agree with. And 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 a lot of it is where do you draw the line? How much autonomy can Hong Kong expect and hope for, and how can it get it? And which forms of autonomy really matter? Because Beijing is is more than happy to give Hong Kong significant economic policy autonomy even now. Now there's hints of there's hints of like Hong Kong not being so valuable. Like I was quite disappointed when Xi Jinping visited Shenzhen and he and he spoke about when he was talking about the Greater Bay Area, it was mostly about Shenzhen, not about Hong Kong. And and it was Hong Kong is like this this city that might help Shenzhen grow and that would be nice. Um, as opposed to Hong Kong as this example of an alternative form of economic organization, which is really valuable to China. And maybe the greater Bay Area should be adopting some of those norms that are existent in Hong Kong in Guangdong, um, which I think was what Hong Kongers are hoping for from the whole greater Bay Area um, concept. But, but the, the going back to my point, Beijing's happy to give Hong Kong economic autonomy, not really happy about have the whole idea of political autonomy. The problem is when it starts to leak in from one to the other. And so the question about independent judiciary and about freedom of expression, freedom of media, are really important questions. Um the the whole because there are some key concepts to the, that it's important for Hong Kong to defend, even in order to maintain a strong economic system, which is still universally recognized as, as good for China, good for the international community, good for Hong Kong. Um, and included in those are the freedom of expression, freedom of the media. Because if, the, if that starts to get chiseled away at, it will impact how the economy works and make it less strong and less compet- make Hong Kong less competitive as a place to do business. Similarly with the independent judiciary. So with the national security law, Hong Kong now has, in essence, two different bodies of law which are not consistent about freedom of expression um, and about political activity. And on one side, there's very vague law that says that foreign collusion and other things are forbidden, but then there's another body of law that says you have freedom of expression, freedom of movement, freedom of opinion, um, etc. And, and how, having inconsistent laws is a recipe. And then two different legal systems where you got some judges that are appointed in one way and some judges appointed another. It's not a disaster yet, but but it's a recipe that's dangerous and you could see some creep into um, the independent judiciary. And there've been really unfortunate statements by some mainland officials calling into question the value of an independent judiciary. Um, It doesn't surprise me to have no bait no Chinese official ever say that a loyal opposition is a good thing, right? Because that's not part of the Chinese political system, right? Loyal opposition means you're that's not good. Um but the um but it would it's really unfortunate to the degree that Beijing starts pushing on the judiciary, pushing on media, because that's gonna really impact the 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 utility of Hong Kong as a place to do business. Over time, gradually, um, uh, but maybe faster than than people might, might think.
0: We have an interesting question from Andy Yonker of the Yale China Association Hong Kong office. After the repression of protests in 1989, the political mood among people in China was bleak. Then the economic takeoff occurred and the changes secured widespread pride and consent in the Chinese model. Is there any way for Beijing to repeat this by breaking Hong Kong's economic impasses around housing and inequality? Is this feat possible? And if so, how is Beijing attempting this? Christine, you want Can to I take- Can I jump in it? on that one first? Oh, I, mean, I That's
2: what I thought Kerry was going to do as as chief executive, that she was come in gonna come in with a lot of energy on social welfare issues because of this these big profound economic gaps. I mean it's a city where where people in Maseratis drive down the same street as people pushing carts, collecting boxes, right? Um it it does the the economic disparities are pronounced. Um and and the and there's a severe housing shortage and and some real cost of living issues. I was as an employer in Hong Kong, distraught by the fact that I, because we based our wages at the consulate on benchmarks of in Hong Kong, white collar workers had not gotten a pay raise for like a decade, right? Um, so those are the issues that 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 uh, that she campaigned on and was hoping that 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 we'd see a lot of that there was a lot of you know resistance around nimbyism and and questions about environment and due process and all that sort of stuff about landfill and whatnot the but but i was hoping that that would be the agenda and instead it became this extradition bill again a really huge mistake um and uh that's kind of unfortunate but Putting, but going forward, the actual question was: Is that an appropriate agenda? Absolutely. And and seeing the the Hong Kong government, with support from Beijing, actually addressing some of those those key development issues in Hong Kong society would be would be, I think, reassuring. Especially if it's done with input from people, not sort of um, just just written by the government and then imposed on everybody.
0: Christine, any
1: thoughts on that? Uh, well, I think the good thing about politics is we can change, we can change overnight. And uh, many people can play some role in that. Now, whether it's possible uh, to, uh, uh, to enter that magic moment, I mean, you know, that's the, uh, that's the billion dollar question. Um, what I'm saying is all kinds of, of political problems Um, can benefit from taking a a new view. Now up in uh, Beijing, um, how can we engage them to have a more positive discussion at a time when they have perhaps many concerns uh, about the geopolitical situation? Uh, Secondly, that in Hong Kong, um, uh, with our local politics having broken down, Um, the different components, uh, whether they're pro-establishment, there's a new party, a party that has just been formed. Uh, You've got the uh, the pro-democracy camp. The problem is I think uh, the pro-democracy camp hasn't had a strategy for a long time. So what I'm saying is all these potential players, uh, what is it that they could be contributing to creating a new moment? Um, I, I think the opportunities are there and then solving problems. Now, may, we might have to conclude that uh, the current administration uh, may have done as much as it could. And, you know, the current administration has a finite life uh, and it is actually coming to the tail end of that. Um, and I think if we were to take uh, what Mrs. Lamb said, well, what she wants to do is to deal with the post COVID economic situation. Uh, and there will be a lot to do uh, in 2021, and then there will be a change of government. So one of the challenges, frankly, also from Beijing, is, um, well, who's going to be the next person that will lead Hong Kong? Uh, How will these problems be resolved? And actually, you know, uh, Kurt mentioned the visit of uh, Xi Jinping to Hong Kong, that was for uh, the uh, uh, the 20th celebration in 2017. And he said, and actually, other senior Chinese officials have been saying for a number of years that Hong Kong needs to get uh, uh, needs to, to to solve the problems that it has. I mean, high land prices, uh, uh, jobs, and so on. So I think these problems that we have, these social economic problems that we have, are well known to Beijing, and Beijing has even kind of, I think, uh, uh, said things to the property uh, uh, tycoons in Hong Kong. Well, you know. You guys have to contribute to this. But exactly what you do, what kind of policies you have, how you bring people together to have those conversations, to build consensus, that has to be done in Hong Kong by the Hong Kong administration. And I think if we were honest, we have to say, well, that hasn't been done very well. So, you know, that magic moment that might come, um, how can we catch it? What contributions can Beijing make if? Beijing's concern about people stirring for secession and whatnot in Hong Kong is going to ease off uh, uh, that uh, uh, US-China relations could, uh, could be better, uh, you know, then I think maybe there will be a, a moment where Hong Kong itself could, uh, uh, could look and have new rules of engagement, which Hong Kong will have to lead and have discussions with Beijing.
0: We have a question talking about 2017 from David Zweig, formerly your colleague, more or less, Christine at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. It's addressed to Kurt and it's a two-part question. How do you respond to surveys that showed that by 2017, 40% of people under 40 hoped that Hong Kong would be independent after 2047. And second, didn't the US Congress essentially interfere in China's internal affairs when it introduced the Hong Kong Freedom and Democracy Act?
2: So if the surveys were accurate and who knows whether they were, that shows what people hoped. Um, If you phrased it, expected i think you'd probably get a different answer um and uh so that's reality i mean people i think a lot of people in hong kong would like to to be part of like belgium or something you know but but that's not the way it is you 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 if you live in hong kong you're part you're you're in china and i think you know just the vast vast majority of of of, uh, of people in, in hong kong know that that's a fact and then whether they say they accept it or not, or that's what they would hope for, or that's what they want, that's where the tolerance thing comes in. And 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 I you know I, I realize from an emotional level for for Beijing, people saying, it's like you know in the United States, people hearing that that such and such people think that the U.S. is terrible and they'd rather not live there. They think that U.S. you know that they should you know. California should be a separate state or something like that. That's offensive to a lot of people. But everyone just kind of shrugged their shoulders and say, you know, well, that's that's not going to happen. Um, Texas gave up being a country, you know, 150 years ago. It's not going to happen. The the um, uh, so and it's kind of a flippant answer, but 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 I, the the um, David's second question was on.
0: Was on the Hong Kong the Security Act, did, did Congress interfere in China's domestic affairs, um, the, Security Act, the Freedom and Democracy Act?
2: Maybe. So what? Does that matter? I mean, China interferes in US domestic affairs on a daily basis, right? Um,
0: Explicitly?
2: Explicitly? No, that, that's not their stated policy. It's not the stated policy of the United States to interfere in China's domestic affairs. It's the stated policy of the US to, they wrote a policy act saying that autonomy is good and the US is gonna support that. If autonomy goes away, we're gonna take action because it's a broken promise.
0: He, David was referring to the Hong Kong Freedom and Democracy Act.
2: Correct, which the, that act says that the U.S. would would take action as or could take action as punishment if Hong Kong, if China breaks its promises over Hong Kong. So is that interference in China's internal affairs? Maybe, I don't know. But but does, does that matter, David? Sorry, I mean, and, and that's, that's a Chinese line that one, if anything that happens inside China's borders, the rest of the world can't comment on it. Because it's China and that just doesn't work. That's not how the planet we're all on this one big planet. We get to talk about each other all the time.
0: Okay we have a question from Sheldon Pang, who's also a national committee director. He says, to me, a turning point in Hong Kong people's sentiment towards the mainland is when the annual candlelight vigil for Tiananmen lost many followers. Do you think it's because people no longer identify themselves as Chinese and therefore do not care as much anymore or they just started to give up as time has elapsed? Christine, why don't you t- tackle that one?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that was a surprise to many of us at uh, may- maybe you could call us the 89 generation. Uh, because for uh, many of us who are older, um, uh, 1989 was a defining moment. Um, but the younger people, um, the, the teenagers and those in, the, you know, around 20, they were the people. The, this is the sort of the rise of the new Uh, political consciousness of of younger people in Hong Kong. I mean, they were the ones who were saying, well, we don't need to associate with any of that. Um, That's not our thing. So what does that show us? I think that shows us uh, a huge disconnect between the younger people and perhaps our uh, our modern history. And that modern history is the modern history of, of China. Um, and I think again, for people like me and my generation, uh, and definitely my father's generation, you know, my father left Shanghai to come to Hong Kong, uh, and he eventually moved on to the U S became, a, a, an American citizen. Um, uh, but he always, he, he always wished China well. And, you know, you could say that there was a lot of reservation, uh, about, uh, uh, the communist party what happened over the years during communist party roots in the 50s and the 60s and so on but i always felt that he wanted china to do better you know that 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 was uh he, he never felt he was not chinese and you know even though he became an american citizen but you know china uh we want china we want china to to do better and and that's certain sort of how i feel how can i contribute to uh, uh, China's development and modernization. But there is a disconnect with the young people. And I think we're dealing probably with quite complex feelings, how they see themselves, how they see Hong Kong, how they see China. Uh, and as a, uh, as a teacher uh, who've given some lectures at HKUST, uh, I've also talked to some young Hong Kong people where i'll give you one example and this this was quite shocking to me i gave a lecture on the environment so this was really about uh, how china uh, uh, might deal with uh, carbon neutrality the work that china has already done in recent years in in, in uh, uh, dealing with uh, the environment which are quite positive positive. Um, and after the class uh, a young hong kong person said to me well how is it possible for china to do well, you know how how are they going to do all these things in the environment when Chinese officials are corrupted and incompetent, you know? I, I know. So, but anyway, it was important to have a discussion. And of course, you know the 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 feeling from the young person. You know why why did you have this feeling? Um, uh, uh, I think is exactly the kind of discussion. Uh, we need to have in in Hong Kong, uh, you know, I'm not implying in any way uh, that uh, the young person that I happen to be uh, uh, interacting with uh, is stupid or ignorant. But what I'm saying is there is a huge gap of just knowledge and, and interest in in the mainland. Um, and how can we how can we deal with that in Hong Kong?
0: I think we have time for one more question. I'd like to give it to Minky Warden of Human Rights Watch. She writes, Kurt, thank you for your strong defense of Hong Kong when you were in the consul general seat. Christine, thank you for your decades of building civil society and awareness of human rights in Hong Kong. Many of Hong Kong's young leaders, including Joshua Wong and Agnes Chow, have gone to prison for long jail terms under harsh prosecutions that previously would have gotten 200 hours of public service. What can the international community do to encourage clemency and reduced sentences for the young people whose main quote unquote crime was advocating for the democracy contained in the 1984 joint
1: declaration? Well, I think first of all is, I, th- I think there'll be a lot of dispute in Hong Kong about whether all the young people uh, who were protesting in 2019, uh, that their, their main thing was uh, uh, pursuing democracy um, because of the level of destruction. And I think this is one key concern that I have that the pro-democracy movement Uh, particularly of uh, the younger people, uh, has it really become an anti-China movement? Now, if this is just a tactic, um, uh, that's one thing, but I think if they really want to pursue uh, electoral reform and democracy in Hong Kong, uh, I'd like to see them be much more thoughtful about how to do it and um, uh, now we have the national security law and there's one line of discussion in Hong Kong that also says, well, we have the national security law and the way that it is uh, uh, written, uh, what it prohibits uh, was actually drafted by the protesters. You know, all the things that China didn't wanna see. Well, all of those things are now in the national security law. So I think we need to be uh, uh, careful about the pro and the anti-narrative in Hong Kong and 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 you know it, it, the, the level of violence and destruction for a very long time was very great it it was it really about democracy or or did it lose its way somewhere and just became an outpouring of uh, Uh, of violence. So I think that's one of the key narratives and discussion we we are going to have to sort out in Hong Kong. And that is being played out in the courts, unfortunately. Now, as I said earlier on, uh, the issue of clemency, uh, we have seen now the chief executive in her policy address kind of raised this issue. But again, let me repeat what I said earlier on, the issue about clemency is that I think you have to acknowledge that you did something wrong and you ain't going to do it again. So I think for people who really have uh, 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 very light, you know, uh, uh, very light crimes, uh, can can clemency be shown with those? And I think that's what uh, Mrs. Lamb was saying. But for those who who committed more serious crimes, uh, I, I I think um, be very difficult just to say, well, let's just forget all about that.
2: Yeah, I, I think that one path forward on this, I'm not um, necessarily optimistic that it will happen, would be to, and, and certainly what the international community would be looking for or might welcome, since that was the question, and react positively to. Because um, it'd, be, it'd be nicer for the international community not just to say, oh, this is awful, such and such is happening, such and such prosecution. Or rather this is, this is, this was better um, would be a focus on, on, on violent crime. So there was, there was violent activity in, in 2019, Mo- the probably the most number of incidents were by people wearing black t-shirts. Um, there was a significant number of incidents by people wearing white t-shirts and there was some police brutality um, that that's just kind of, clear facts on the ground um, I haven't seen yet a pattern of prosecuting uh, violent acts as being the the priority in terms of what the prosecutorial activity and instead it seems to be focusing mainly on people who are politically significant um, and have political voice, which is a different and um, approach a, you know different in a bad way. Um, approach to to um, uh, trying to reorganize or or, or deal with the, the the justice aspects of cleaning up after the after 2019. So that uh, so it, it really the the way the approach that's being taken to prosecutions, particularly under the national security law, really feels more like uh, the a uh, political clampdown than. um, than than trying to prosecute people for having stepped over the line in terms of their individual actions as part of a protest movement.
1: Can I just make a clarification here? Many of the protesters are, 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 in terms of what they did in 2019, uh, is of course not being prosecuted under the national security law. Those that are being prosecuted uh, under the security law, the numbers are very small at the moment. There have been, of course, a number of uh, uh, arrests. And when you're thinking about uh, things like collusion, then who are the people? Well, they happen to be the more significant people who could get to go and see um, uh, significant people in, in the US. So what I'm saying is this this is a, a difficult situation. Uh, we have to kind, it is unsettling. Uh, we'll have to see how it goes. Um, the national security law is there and I hope um, people are going to be sensitive to going overseas to lobby for sanctions against Hong Kong and China, because that isn't that would just cause more collateral damage in Hong Kong itself.
0: Well, we have to stop at this point. Unfortunately, we cannot resolve everything this evening, but I thank both of our speakers very much. And I thank the audience for staying with us I hope everybody has a healthy, safe, and happy holiday season and new year. I think we can agree that we want 2021 to be better than 2020 has been. That's for sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.